With the murder of George Floyd, the search for ways to tame police misconduct has become more intense than ever. Can requiring officers to have private insurance play a role? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd geek and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow hanging on by the proverbial fingernails to that wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Here on Criminal Injustice, the subject of police misconduct, particularly police use of force and excessive force, has always been near the center of the agenda. We began the podcast in the wake of the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Eric Garner in Staten Island, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, and so many more, where the question wasn't so much what happened, Sometimes it took an investigation. Sometimes it was right on video, like with Eric Garner and that chokehold that killed him. The question was why? Why does this keep happening? Uh, The core of my most recent book, A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law and Police Confrontations, is targeted at exactly that question. Why does it keep happening? And of course, the question that follows, what do we do to stop this? From happening over and over. Among the many conversations we've had here on the program about police misconduct, we explored the question of why big damage awards don't seem to change this egregious police behavior. Most recently, on episode 120, our friend and three-time guest, journalist Brenton Mock of City Lab, talked to us about the way that cities and police departments pay these costs which are sometimes enormous, uh, in some cities amounting to tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. Brenton told us that these cities, cash-strapped as they often are, have turned to the bond market, issuing interest-bearing municipal bonds to pay for this egregious behavior instead of rooting it out ahead of time. In the second half of our conversation, you might remember we had the following exchange. Listen up. What about the idea, and you talked a little bit about this in your piece, the idea of having, requiring um, police departments and maybe police officers themselves to carry some type of insurance? Um, the, uh, other professions do it. I mean, doctors need malpractice insurance. Lawyers have to carry malpractice insurance. Um, this is a debated point I know in some of the literature. What's your take on that? Um, you know, as to whether an insurance company, uh, would, uh, insure an individual police officer, given the, the very high level of, uh, of risk involved there. Um, I don't know. From what I understand with the research, there, there are very few, if any, insurance companies, very few insurance companies that will insure a police officer at the individual level. Um, there are some insurance companies that cover police departments. Um, and in that, in, in, in those situations, um, and usually it's more the city, but, but in some cases it's the police department itself. Uh, but I think in those situations, that's that's probably you know 
that's probably the right thing to do. Now, let's think about this idea. Let's assume that if insurance was required for individual officers, some insurance companies might be willing to write policies for the right price, of course. So officers would have to have insurance like doctors or lawyers carry malpractice insurance or like we carry insurance so we can drive. Would that work? Is that just crazy talk? Well, consider this episode, part two of that conversation and that question with Brenton Mock. Our guest today has made one of the most serious proposals out there about the idea of police carrying liability insurance, and she is going to sketch it out for us. Deborah Ramirez is professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston. She teaches, among other courses, first-year criminal justice and a seminar called Race, Justice, and Reform. Professor Ramirez has a decades-long record of work in seeking justice and equality in the criminal legal system. She and I first met when we were among the very small number of academics who participated in the U.S. Department of Justice's problem-solving group on law enforcement stops and searches in 1998 and 1999. Her list of publications is long and varied, but even more impressive to me is how she has put her research to work in the field. In Massachusetts, she's worked on and sometimes also chaired everything from the Judicial Nominating Council to the Hispanic Advisory Commission to Governor Charlie Baker's Safer, Stronger Communities Committee, which was part of Baker's transition team. She's been quite visible over the last several months on issues of changing police behavior in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, and we'll be talking to her about an article she co-authored in 2019 that really fits our moment. She's one of the authors of Policing the Police, Could Mandatory Professional Liability Insurance for Officers Provide a New Accountability Model, which was published in the American Journal of Criminal Law. We'll have a link to it on our website. Professor Debbie Ramirez, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so glad that you could join us. Now, for those of you uh, out there who didn't know this before, you certainly know it now. The George Floyd case has put a a very intense spotlight on police misconduct. Uh, Of course, uh, police uh, violence with civilians, but not only that. Um, And we have seen how officers engage in dangerous, risky behavior, even behavior that will sometimes leave citizens dead or seriously injured. Uh, And I think there's a perception out there uh, that very few people within police ranks who engage in these behaviors ever face real discipline. Uh, Do you have a sense of whether that's true or not? Is that perception uh, uh, mostly correct, mostly incorrect, right or wrong? I think that's absolutely correct. I think one of the biggest problems that we face right now is that there is no police accountability for police misconduct. And I want to explain that um, with two examples. So first, Um, As many of your listeners may already know, police chiefs 
aren't able to keep bad cops off the street because the unions through collective bargaining have made it virtually impossible for a police chief to fire a police officer. You say virtually impossible to fire a police officer. Explain what you mean by that. Why is it impossible to fire a police officer, let's say one who's behaved very badly? Um, Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. The biggest reason is the police disciplinary system, which um, includes arbitration. So um, through the um, collective bargaining process, the police unions have said that the police chief may not discipline or fire them unless they go through a police controlled arbitration process. And I have a quote from um, a police chief about what that arbitration process means, even for disciplining an officer, much less for terminating them. Now, why don't you define what arbitration is and before you give the quote, if I could, if I could ask you, please. Oh, sure. It means that you have to go through a special process. You have to sort of pick someone, a person, who's going to arbitrate or decide the dispute. It doesn't go to a court. And it's not in like in the normal employment process where if you do something wrong, your boss can fire you and the boss decides what you did and whether it's wrong. Um, in an arbitration process, you have to go through and pick an arbitrator, a person trained to uh, resolve disputes. And that uh, dispute resolver um, decides whether in fact the police chief was correct for disciplining you or whether what you did was wrong. And so this arbitration process in which the chief's decision to fire an officer, say, um, uh, is not final. The arbitrator actually makes the final decision, and that arbitration process is written into the union contract. Is that it? Yes, and it's also controlled by the police. And I, I actually wanted to be proximate to this. I wanted to talk to police chiefs about this. I wanted them to tell me why it was that they couldn't hire the officers who they wanted to hire? Why was it that they couldn't promote the officers who they felt were doing a good job as guardians, keeping our communities safe and strong? Why is it that they couldn't discipline the officers and why couldn't they terminate them? And so I talked to the uh, Billy Evans, who's the chief of police, in Boston, and he explained to me something I did not understand. So he said, first of all, Debbie, I don't get to hire the officers who I want to hire. And he said, of course, the best way to keep risky and dangerous police officers off the street is not to hire them in the first place. He said, but I can't hire the people who I think are going to be the best guardians of the of Boston's community. I have to hire people who got the highest test score on a civil service test. And frequently, I don't even get to hire those people because there's a veteran's preference. And I must hire the veterans who come in front of the people who scored the highest. He said, now, I don't have anything against veterans, but their training is, is warriors. And I am trying to move from a warrior police model 
to a guardianship model. I want people who have lived in Boston, who have lived in diverse communities, who have worked with people who are economically disadvantaged mm -hmm. and who have a demonstrated record of helping them. But I can't hire those people. What about the disciplinary process? How does, this, how does the arbitration affect the disciplinary process? Well, he said, I'm overturned by the arbitrators two thirds of the time. He said, even for officers who use excessive force, um, the arbitrators overturn it. And the reason is that the police unions control the arbitration process. So Fred sort of explained this to me, Fred Ryan, who's the chief of police of Arlington. He said, Debbie, arbitrators have to be selected through a selection process. And the unions are what we call huge repeat customers. Every dispute, the union comes in and helps to select an arbitrator. He said, I, Fred Ryan, maybe go in to select an arbitrator one or two times a year, um, but I am not the big giant repeat customer that they're trying to respond to. So the arbitrators, if they want work, have to ensure that their interests and their conduct aligns with that of the police unions. So the, the, the arbitration system is very police oriented. And he said, um, he, he gave me examples. He said, I discipline numerous police officers and then the arbitrator rules in favor of the union. Why? Because the arbitrators are selected through a process um, where I am a little guy and the unions are the big guy in the process. He said, and while it looks fair and impartial on paper, he said, we as police chiefs talk to each other. He said, Billy Evans, the chief of police of Boston, fired the same officer twice for use of excessive force. And twice the officer was reinstated. Over time, the legislature has stripped police chiefs of their management rights to hold officers accountable in any meaningful way. And the costs associated by going through this process over and over again and terminating bad cops is exorbitant. Yes. Now, that's an interesting point, too. In some instances, it is a legislature that has built that arbitration system into place and protected it. In others, uh, cities have given away parts of the disciplinary process, including some arbitration issues, have given that away in their collective bargaining agreements. And when those officers return to the force, and everybody knows that they are the officers, the 5% or 10% who cause 90% of the problems, that has an effect on the organization as a whole, doesn't it? Well, it affects the culture. Um, and it affects the culture adversely because when bad cops who do dangerous and risky things are brought back to the department, the mm -hmm. message to everyone is you can engage in this conduct and there will not be consequences. You can take risks. You can engage in dangerous practices. You can decide not to de-escalate. You can um, decide not to abide by your training and by the rules, and there are no consequences. You are untouchable. And if that's the case, even officers who might not engage in those behaviors um, see that and they see that there's no reason to stand up 
against it and re- and say, hey, don't do that, or even report their fellow officers. It doesn't have any consequences, and they would be ostracized or retaliated against. Right. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said, no profession really can police itself. Um, she's a teacher. And she made the point that, you know, when you see a teacher who is coming to school and who's drunk or who has a substance use disorder problem or an anger management problem or isn't prepared or has some problem, um, you say to yourself, they're what for the grace of God go I, and I don't want to be the one to turn them in, which is an argument for in every profession, having an independent auditor look at the situation and not rely on peers or on, in the case of police, on a management that has no tools at its disposal. Yes. So um, we have some idea through your work and the work of many others, what the problem is with this arbitration system and how it seems to be used to protect people who should not be on the job. What's the record, if there is one, uh, with getting rid of this arbitration system and giving chiefs the authority they need to uh, take the worst people out of their ranks? I haven't seen it done. I mean, maybe in Camden for a little while it was done. But I think that um, the problem here is that the unions are very powerful and they're doing what they're supposed to do, which is they're supposed to um, advocate on behalf of their members. Um, And that's what they're doing. Um, So you wonder what happened to this system? Where did it go wrong? How did policing get broken? Um, and, And those are the questions that a lot of people ask me. And I say to them, we broke it. And they look at me puzzled. And I say, look, you know, the police unions are powerful and different from other police unions, other unions. So unlike truck driver unions, or teachers unions, which all have money and which all use their money to play politics. And that's the way the world is. Sure. Police unions have something else. Here's what they have. They have branding power. So every politician who runs in every state wants those uniformed police officers behind them and endorsing them, not just with money and votes, but by branding them as being tough on crime. That still works now? Well, it may not now, but it has for a long time. I think the calculus is changing. And if you want to know what happened in the past, other than, let's say, since March, um, the unions had branding power, and that branding power was that you didn't want to be called soft on crime. And we gave them that branding power. We the voters. We the voters said, we understand your message, which has racial implications to it, which is you, the officers, are keeping us safe from them, right? And the them is uh, black and brown men of color. And we want you to keep us safe from them. And we're buying that narrative. And you are telling us with your branding power who to vote for. And it worked. I don't think it's going to work as effectively in the future. But they garnered incredible amounts of power. And even today, even now, as we're going through police reform legislation, the unions are, because they've had power over many years, 
right? They're extremely well organized. They yes. have a machine and they know how it works and it's well oiled and it's well funded and they get their voices heard and they know how to move the system. And we are new at this. And um, our voices aren't as well organized. Um, we're not a well-oiled machine. And I still think they have an inordinate amount of power. And I still think in every legislature, as we're fighting for police reform, the unions are on the other side pushing against it. It's generally true. That is what I have observed, too, in my state of Pennsylvania. Uh, I testified most recently in June in the state Senate. I certainly saw it on display in that testimony. Um, and, you know, it, it's a different situation with a police union because if, if it was, let's say, the Teamsters and a, and ABC Trucking Company, it would be those two having some common interests and some uh, um, interests that are opposed to each other and they work it out. In the case of a public employee union generally, but especially a police union, there is an invisible third party at the table, and that is the public that is supposed to be served. And if you have a union that wants something very different than the public uh, might want, that is kind of troubling. So we know that this system, as you say, uh, your way of putting it is that the system is broken. You have a different way to approach this. And I'd like you to tell us about that. And it involves private insurance. Yes. So I think you need to know what the problem is before you can solve it. And we've discussed Always. the problem. So part of the problem is that police chiefs can't keep bad cops off the street um, because of uh, unions through uh, arbitration, through uh, collective bargaining, um, making it virtually impossible. But the second prong is just as important. Even if you sue a police officer, the police officer is not going to pay the money damagements or settlement from that suit. Yes. Again, through collective bargaining, these powerful unions have forced municipalities to pay 100% of the costs of police misconduct. And for your listeners, I want to spell that out for a minute. That means that you, David, and I, and your listeners as taxpayers right now are paying 100% of the costs of illegal, unconstitutional, criminal police misconduct. And the officer pays not one penny. So we have no way, not through lawsuits and not through the police chief, to weed out bad officers so good cops can thrive. I want to read you one small paragraph of the Minneapolis um, labor agreement that Minneapolis agreed to through the collective bargaining process with its police union. It says um, that there's a restriction and delay on police interrogations, that they may not interrogate an officer until after the officer has seen all the reports of any incident. It limits oversight discipline to this arbitration process. The, the chief can't discipline. It has to go through the arbitration process. And here's the important part. It requires the city to pay for costs relating to misconduct including giving paid leave while under investigation and paying 
all of the officer's legal fees, and it calls for erasing the misconduct records. This is the kind of negotiations that the union has been able to engage in, which I think violates um, public interest because as you said, it is not just a trucking industry, it is an industry that affects the public um, and it is an industry that affects our safety. Absolutely. So, so your alternative would be to change whether officers themselves have some skin in the game and where the damages are paid and how. Spell it out for us. All right, so here's how it would work. In, we want to begin ensuring police officers like other professionals. So just the way who doctors, um, if they were to operate on the wrong leg or arm or engage in other reckless practices, their premiums would go up and they and their professional liability insurance company would have to pay for any damages that they caused. If, if you are a healthcare professional, in most states, you must carry professional liability insurance for this purpose to protect the public from any malpractice claims. Sure, same um, with lawyers, right? The same with lawyers, drivers have to carry driver's insurance. Um, so it is that model. Now, if a surgeon or a doctor were to continue to engage in dangerous behavior, if they were continuing to operate on the wrong arm or leg over and over again, or do something else reckless and dangerous, their premiums would skyrocket mm -hmm. and they would be priced out of medicine. And in the same way, we are saying, we are asking every state legislature to require that any police officer that's going to police must carry professional liability insurance. And this means that if the officer were to engage in reckless or dangerous conduct, their premiums would rise. And if they continued to engage in reckless and dangerous conduct, they would be priced out of policing through an increase in premium costs. Just like if you get a lot of tickets or you continue to get in accidents, you can't find uh, reasonably priced auto insurance, your insurance gets very expensive, the same thing would happen to a police officer, right? Yes, um, your listeners know that as drivers, if they get driving under the influence convictions and drive drunk multiple times, if they hit a pedestrian, if they get multiple speeding tickets or engage in other reckless or dangerous driving activities, their premiums are gonna skyrocket and eventually they will be priced out of driving. And this would work the same way. What we're saying is that we need to send in the actuaries. So what actuaries do and insurance companies do is they assess risk. And they do this by creating risk assessment algorithms. And um, they do this for drivers. So they price bad drivers out of driving. They do it for lawyers. They price bad lawyers out of lawyering. They do it for doctors. They price bad doctors out of medicine. And we're asking them to begin doing this for police officers and to beginning price 
bad officers out of policing. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. There's another little element I want to make sure you talk about too. We know that when we have an auto insurance policy or a professional liability policy, one of the ways that the person I mean, you you would get any damages paid for by the insurance company if it's covered, but you'd also have to pay a deductible. That plays a role here too, doesn't it? Yes. What we're saying is that we'd like all officers to carry a million dollars worth of professional liability insurance. The police department is going to pay the average base premium for all officers. And anything additional, If you have an additional premium cost because of misconduct or dangerous policing, the officer pays that. And the municipalities under this procedure are prohibited from paying any of the costs of police misconduct. And that's important for your listeners because I want to focus on that for one minute. Taxpayers need to get out of the business of paying limitless amounts for police misconduct costs. In New York City, over five years, that city paid $384 million in police misconduct costs. In Chicago, they paid $350 million over eight years. And these costs are ballooning. In Minneapolis, where George Floyd was strangled to death, in a single case, the shooting of Damon in July of 2017, the settlement was $20 million. Taxpayers can no longer afford this. And that was part of the impetus for writing this article and coming up with this plan. Because I listened to the words of a former attorney for the city of Chicago. They had the $350 million bill for police misconduct. And he said this, when you had to budget more for police tort liability, you had less to do lead poisoning screening for poor children of Chicago. We had a terrible lead poisoning problem and there was a direct relationship between the two. Those kids were paying those tort judgments, not the police. And I wanna say this, we're in a pandemic. Municipalities need their money to open our schools, to keep our children safe, and to give them a decent education. They should not be in the business of paying for police misconduct. Those urban children should not be paying the price for what those officers do. That's wrong, it's unfair, and we can't afford to do that anymore. We're going to take a quick break here. Our guest is Professor Deborah Ramirez of Northeastern University School of Law, and we're talking about her article, co-authored, in which she argues for professional liability insurance requirements for police officers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. 
Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Professor Deborah Ramirez of Northeastern University School of Law, who has a proposal out now circulating in a number of places to require police officers to carry professional liability insurance uh, for the purposes of covering any damages or injuries uh, caused by police through misconduct with the idea that this would build in financial incentives and disincentives uh, not to engage in misconduct, uh, to behave correctly, and the officers would have some skin in the game through deductibles. I wonder, uh, Debbie, if you could tell us the kinds of things that you have called indicators of dangerous uh, behavior or misconduct. Uh, I've heard these discussed before in terms of early warning systems, where police departments have a system that identifies bad conduct uh, and tries to get officers help if it's possible. Um, if you could discuss what you see the insurance companies would use to either increase or in some instances perhaps decrease premiums. Um, well, what you've said is, is really important. First of all, um, we're fortunate that it's only 5 to 10% of the officers who are causing 80% of the problems. So there's a small number and they are easily identifiable. And we have decades of research telling us what the early warning indicators are. The problem is the police chief may not act on those early warning indicators and may mm -hmm. not discipline or do anything, including offering counseling or training um, because the unions prohibit it um, and, and have prohibited through the collective uh, bargaining process. So what do we know are the, some of the objective indicators? Um, Unfortunately, police officers have more domestic violence restraining orders than the ordinary non-police person, about three to four times more. 
Um, and a domestic violence restraining order is an indicator of anger management and of a problem. It is a public record. It is objective. Um, the number of settlements or judgments. In many of these cases, the officers have already been sued successfully, and the city has already paid $25,000, $30,000 in excessive use of force suits. Um, the number of complaints, especially sustained complaints, criminal convictions, surprisingly to me, since you can't be hired with a conviction, um, many of them do have convictions for assaults and bars, um, for driving under the influence, um, and, for, uh, and for other actions. Has disciplinary action been taken? And how many times has their revolver been discharged? Most officers never discharge their weapon. And I wanna give you an example of how that works. So Daniel Pantaleo is the officer who arrested Eric Garner for allegedly selling untaxed single cigarettes in New yes. York City. Um, and Garner was eventually strangled to death and he said on video, I can't breathe. Pantaleo was in the top 2% of all New York City officers with the most sustained civilian complaints, sustained complaints. He had many prior lawsuits. Two were pending at the time for illegal searches conducted in February of 2012, and both were substantiated by the Civilian Review Board. In January of 2014, the city settled a suit for an illegal strip search. This was before he ever met Eric Garner. And in June of 2014, there was a civil suit for crashing a police car into another car and a disciplinary action. Under this system, these would have been early warning signs and indications of future um, dangerous policing. I'm gonna do one more, Derek Chauvin. Um, right, this is the fellow who killed George Floyd in front of us. Yes, he was 19 years on the force. At the time, he had 22 prior complaints. One was closed with disciplinary action. He was involved in multiple shootings in 2006, 2008, and 2011. Um, when Dave Bicking, uh, who's a board member of Communities United Against Police Brutality in the Twin Cities examined it, he said that's a high number of complaints compared to other officers. His numbers should have definitely raised alarm with the department and triggered a review. Most officers get one or two complaints in seven years. Again, the actuaries would have identified Derek Chauvin as an officer um, who was engaged in dangerous and risky behavior long before he met George Floyd, and he would have been priced out of policing before he had a chance to strangle him. Yes. Now, I can almost hear the voices of police officers saying something like, you mean we have to buy insurance to have this job? Uh, nobody's going to want to have this job if we have to be under Professor Ramirez's system. Uh, it's just uh, cost prohibitive. We're, you know, we'd be on the line in a way we're not now. Who would want that job? How do you respond to that? Um, well, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, we ask police officers to do hard work, and we want good people to become officers. Just like hospitals offer professional liability insurance to doctors, um, and they pay the average premium costs, um, that would happen for the police too. So the police would not be paying for the insurance. The department would pay the average base 
premium. So it would not cost them anything unless they began to engage in risky and dangerous behavior. Then they would have to pay the additional premium costs generated by that behavior. But there are also carrots and sticks here. You know, I, I got a, a, an email from a Chicago police officer um, after he heard me talk about this on NPR. And he said, I actually like your system. He said, all of us know who these officers are. They're our friends. Um, some of them are related to us uh, and they're traumatized. Um, they go where you people would not wanna go and they do things you people don't wanna do and they experience trauma and they start drinking and they start slapping around their wife or their kid and they start engaging in bad behavior and we watch. Everyone watches and no one does anything. He said, what I like about your system is that you identify them and the first thing you do is offer them counseling, treatment, and programming. And if they engage in that, their premiums are reduced, just like a good driver um, ah. course reduces your driving premiums. So there is a chance at redemption and second chance. And the insurance companies are very good at figuring out which programs are going to work and offering those programs. Only if the officer refuses to address the problem, to take advantage of counseling and treatment that's offered, will their premiums continue to rise and they'll be priced out of policing. So there are choices here, there are carrots and sticks. And I would say to the police officer who opposes this, are the unions really doing you a service by keeping people like Derek Chauvin on the force until they explode? And are they even doing Derek Chauvin a service? Because under my system, he would have been priced out. Would he have been mad? Yeah. Would he have gone to the administrative board and said, unfair? Yeah, and he gets a hearing about whether it was unfair to raise his premiums. Could he have then gone to a judge? Absolutely, and a judge would have to determine was it arbitrary and capricious. Would he have been priced out? Oh, absolutely with that record. And he would have been mad. But you know what? He wouldn't be headed for jail for life. And he never would have met George Floyd. And George Floyd would be alive. Which system is really better for Derek Chauvin, for mm -hmm. the police, for the department, and for us, right. the public? Right. So true uh, that we do not pay attention to what happens to officers in the mix as well as what happens to citizens. Um, the, 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 the idea of having carrots and sticks as part of this uh, makes it something that I think more people would find palatable. But I could also imagine them raising the question of whether a private entity like an insurance company should be uh, mucking into regulating a public institution like police, because that's effectively what you're doing. You're bringing in the private market to discipline a public function. Do we really want that? Does that raise problems of its own? Would we be better off in some other way? Well, that's a good question. But private insurance companies are regulating a lot of public activity. So if a public school bus driver, for example, um, engages in risky behaviors and can't get insurance, they're priced out of public school bus activity. Um, 
the insurance companies are not really saying what you can do, what you can't do. They're not disciplining. They're just saying at some point there's a risk to the public here that ought to be accounted for. And they are an independent auditor of risk. And they send up a warning sign, like a light that says, risk, risk, risk. Here's what they do. Um, they don't, for example, if a public hospital has uh, people who carry insurance, they're not telling the doctors in private hospitals or public hospitals what you do every day. What they are doing is saying, there should be some risk assessment scorecards here and there are risks, and here's how we're gonna calculate them, and here's what's going to happen. So that is different. Um, you could, by the way, segregate out the risk assessment function, which could remain private, and the pooling function of funds, which could remain public. But essentially what an independent auditor is doing is this. They have a system of graduated responses to risky, dangerous police behavior that doesn't exist now. Two, they have an early identification system that can prevent, detect, and deter. A lot of the other systems, decertification, post, civilian review board, and lawsuits are after the fact. After someone puts their knee for eight minutes on someone's neck, then we investigate, then we decertify. But who is preventing, detecting, and deterring this in the first place? No one. And the system is not solely punitive. It is carrots and sticks. It is trying to remediate. I talked to um, Commissioner Bard from Cambridge. He is the chief of police from, of Cambridge. And he said, I know who my officers are who are troubled. I know who's drinking. I know who has substance use abuse. I know the officers who have domestic violence restraining order. I know the ones who are beating people up because I hear about it. He said, and I would like to help them. So I have offered them counseling, treatment, programming. The union prohibits me from doing that because they say I'm adding a condition of employment that was not bargained for through collective bargaining so I am prohibited from ordering that officer to treatment. And without that order, the officer won't do it. Because like many people who are traumatized, the officer is in denial about what's happening. But if an insurance company says, look, you have the DUIs, you have to go to this program, you're going to pay increased premiums. The officer may be able to save face and say, I don't think I have a problem, but I'm going I'm going because I don't want to pay the premium. Right. It doesn't matter why the officer goes. Right. As long as they do. As long as they do. Yeah. In uh, just a last question, um, this kind of proposal is beginning to get some legs. And I'd like you to tell uh, listeners where you see this going, if it's got uh, possibilities in any particular states, what we might see over the next six months, a year, two years. Okay, in New York, um, uh, Senator Biagi has filed a bill um, making it, that would make it the law that police in New York, you have to carry professional liability insurance. And in New York, they have made the police disciplinary records public 
which is important yes. for this whole process. Um, and in Colorado, um, they basically have uh, required the police uh, officer to pay the first $25,000 of damages and settlements on lawsuits, which in turn is making them think about professional liability insurance for that amount. Um, what, what I am advocating along with um, Marcus Wright, who is the co-author of my article, and Mitchell Kosk, who is part of um, this team, and Tamar Pinto, we call ourselves accountability warriors, um, is that the state legislature narrow the scope of collective bargaining to exclude um, hiring, firing, promotion, discipline, and the cost allocation of police misconduct suits. Um, it would require the legislature to say all police must carry professional liability insurance and it would prohibit the municipality from paying or indemnifying the officer for police misconduct costs. At the police level, we hope that the police will begin to release disciplinary records as public records the way New York did, that the officer would pay a $5,000 deductible, but that the department would pay the average base premium and the officer only pay any additional premium costs. That's Professor Deborah Ramirez at Northeastern University School of Law, along with her co-authors. She's got an article out and a set of proposals that would require police to carry professional liability insurance in order to address misconduct. Thanks a lot for being my guest today on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. My pleasure. It was an honor. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And this story of a lawyer and judge behaving badly from the Associated Press and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer judge Len Kaczynski of Fox Crossing Municipal Court in Wisconsin. Listeners might be wondering... Len Kaczynski. Familiar name. I, have I heard of this guy before? Well, if you are among those so wondering, then you must be one of the people who binged and nerded out big time on the streaming hit Making a Murderer on Netflix in 2015. Lawyer and Judge Kaczynski was the attorney for Brendan Dassey, who was convicted along with his uncle in the murder of Teresa Halbach, which took place in 2005. So just what else has Lawyer Kaczynski been up to? Well, being a reserve municipal judge in the Fox Crossing Courthouse in Wisconsin, and that and not making a murderer, is where lawyer and part-time judge Kaczynski's trouble started. It seems that Judge Kaczynski wanted to have more than a professional relationship with the municipal court manager, a staff person, who worked with Judge Kaczynski. They were friendly, but at some point the court manager decided she wanted a professional relationship only. 
Judge Kaczynski was not happy about that. According to papers later filed by the court manager, she alleged that Kaczynski harassed her and retaliated against her, making her life, quote, a living nightmare. So what did the court manager do about this? Well, the court manager is, well, a person who knows her way around the court system. So she decided she was done with this behavior and sought and was granted a restraining order against Kaczynski. Now, that should have told Kaczynski that he needed to stop his behavior. But no, it did not seem to get through to him. His response before even a month had gone by after the order was issued was to hang a poster in the courthouse just a few feet from the court manager's desk, which showed a portion of the town's personnel manual, which related to sexual harassment. Kaczynski's point? That he had not sexually harassed the manager. And to be extra sure his point came across, Judge Kaczynski had highlighted the word sexual every time it came up in the manual material. Thanks for that helpful lesson there, Judge. The court manager responded by calling the police, telling them that she believed that this poster business violated the restraining order. That order said that Kaczynski was to stay away from her. The police came, Kaczynski was questioned and released, and was greeted that same day with the news that the Wisconsin Supreme Court had suspended him from serving as a municipal court judge until 2021 because of the harassment charges. But wait, there's more, as they say on those commercials. In addition to his suspension, the authorities decided to charge him criminally with felony stalking and two violations of the restraining order. Kaczynski sent the court manager emails, more charges of violating the restraining order. These emails included invitations to, quote, hit the reset button on their relationship, whining about her having unfriended him on Facebook, and inviting her to, quote, a beer or wine summit to, quote, discuss the relationship issue, close quote. At trial, Kaczynski's lawyer defended his client by saying that what looked like harassment was just the result of Kaczynski's, quote, quirkiness. According to the defense, quote, Kaczynski had once popped out from behind a counter and shouted, roar, at the court manager. And he would occasionally, quote, meow randomly, close quote. The court manager seemed to verify this uh, behavior. One time, she testified he sat behind the manager making cat noises until she finally got up and left. Well, okay, is lawyer and former Judge Kaczynski a stalker or just a clueless, annoying idiot with the social skills and emotional intelligence of a seventh grader? Well, a criminal proceeding was held and not a stalker, but yes, a person who acts like the world's most annoying seventh grader. But when this happens in the face of a court's restraining order... Not simply annoying, convicted of violating the order. 
And on July 29, 2020, the Wisconsin Appeals Court refused to reverse that conviction. I wonder if that is what led to the lovely picture in the ABA Journal online article of Lawyer Kaczynski in the flattering orange jail clothing. At least that's what it looks like. Hey, he's even smiling. Lawyers, judges of the male persuasion, are you ever going to start listening to the people right in front of you. You want to know how to avoid accusations of harassment, charges of stalking, violations of court orders? When someone says they're not interested, just stop. Walk away. Go find someone else who finds cat and lion noises just oh so cute. Maybe one of the fans of that tiger lady on that other Netflix show. But hey, maybe you're just always going to be stuck in 7th grade. Okay, well, I hear they're now teaching 7th grade classes in the county jail remedial unit. You might be able to learn some things. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Past Tense, Judicial Edition. And that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave? Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and a brief question. Give us a little contact info, but we won't share that. Again, 412-407-3389. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on the website. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear, you want to help us do it, go to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. And we really sincerely appreciate those of you who have done that. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. More than 2 million Americans are incarcerated in prisons and jails. These are often violent, difficult, and unhealthy places. But if prison is dangerous, how much more so is death row? And how does a person live knowing the only way out might be death by execution? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.